there's a beautiful footnote toward the very end of Democracy, Volume 2, where he says, and I'm just paraphrasing, man's vision of unity is a sterile one he makes everyone march is sort of single file toward one destination uh god's vision of unity is is infinitely fruitful uh he leads us all by an infinite variety of paths toward one destination that we we can never really know in advance uh and that thought permeates the book the voice there of james polis here on radio free acton how you doing, everyone? Good to have you back on the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss, and it is my pleasure to be your host, as usual, here on the podcast of the Acton Institute. We have another good one for you today. We like to talk about Alexis de Tocqueville here on Radio Free Acton. We did a number of episodes back, back in October, actually. John Wilsey was here at the Acton Institute as part of the Acton Lecture Series, uh, giving an address entitled How to Read de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. And uh, we interviewed him for the podcast back then. He's now back uh, in town. He is an assistant professor of history and Christian apologetics, as well as associate director of the Land Center for Cultural Engagement at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And since he was in town here in Grand Rapids, we thought it would be a great opportunity for him to drop by uh, the Acton building and talk with our guest uh, tonight. As we're recording this, we uh, it is Monday, March 6th, and we have an event tonight in downtown Grand Rapids. We call it Acton on Tap, uh, kind of an informal gathering of friends and uh, interested parties, uh, friends of the Acton Institute, I should say. And tonight, speaking at Acton on Tap right here in downtown Grand Rapids is James Polis, uh, the gentleman that you heard at the top of the, uh, the podcast there. He is the author of The Art of Being Free, How Alexis de Tocqueville Can Save Us from ourselves. Interesting topic for the times that we live in in the United States of America. I can say that for certain. We are embroiled in uh, cultural disputes, political disputes uh, of all kinds. And so it's never a bad thing to look back to Tocqueville to see what he said about America in its youth, what he predicted about America in its maturity, and maybe to see if there's something that we can glean from his wisdom to apply to our situation today. So without further ado, I'm going to pass the mic over to John Wilsey and James Polis here on Radio Free Acton. James, uh, you know, your book is called The Art of Being Free, How Alexei de Tocqueville Can Save Us From Ourselves. Um, it just came out in January, correct? Uh, that's right, end of January. And um, on sale now. Can you... Um, Maybe just start us off and uh, tell us what uh, what do you mean by the art of being free? Well, that's pulled straight out of uh, Tocqueville himself, out of Democracy in America. So, spoiler alert, this is not my original idea. Um, what Tocqueville means about it uh, is, is more complex and interesting than at first appears. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that you can glean from a self-help book or for, you know, freedom for dummies. There's no 12-step plan. Uh, it's a combination of, uh, of an orientation toward the world and a set of practices with others, not just uh, sort of people you think are your friends on Facebook or, uh, or people who you think of as your best friend forever, but you know the whole range of folks in the realm of neighbors and, and true friends, family members, strangers. Uh, and then on top of, uh, of all that, um, it's also there's, a, there's an emotional component too. Uh, <clears throat> if you are coming to read Tocqueville without any life experience, 
you're going to be educated, but it's really not going to sing for you. Uh, Tocqueville was a young guy. Uh, he was relatively young when he died. He was young when he wrote Democracy in America. Uh, he spent five years between writing Volume 1 and Volume 2 and was still fairly young by the time the whole thing was done. And yet, he had a life full of experience, and there was a certain uh, melancholy and yearning that pervades the book as a result of his experience and his closeness to death. Uh, if you do have that kind of life experience, I think that you are going to pull a lot more out of Tocqueville. He's going to sing to you in a way he wouldn't otherwise. Uh, and for those of you who, you know, are, are sort of haven't been kicked around too much by life, uh, I have. And so I've taken the liberty of reading the book for you and trying to encapsulate that sense of, uh, of, uh, of, of an emotional uh, awareness of yeah. freedom in, yeah. into my book. Yeah, I, mean, I, th I think that uh, Tocqueville is one of the most interesting people ever because, um, I mean, he's, he's, so he's born in 1800, 1807, 1809, one of those two dates. I can't remember exactly which one. Um, his uh, family had, had some, some pretty rough experiences in the French Revolution. Tell us a little bit about his background and who he was. So it's, I'll, I'll just start with Democracy in America, which uh, is sometimes thought of as kind of, you know, like he took a gap year and went backpacking through America <laughs> uh, and had these, these thoughts, you know. Uh, no, it wasn't that. Um, he got together with his, uh, his best friend. Uh, and nominally, they were going to the U.S. to do a report on the prison system. Uh, instead, they were really just trying to get out of Paris uh, because things were getting a little hot politically. Uh, so they did get out. Uh, Beaumont, his friend, uh, actually wrote a book of his own uh, focused on the South. Uh, Tocqueville's book was focused more on the North, uh, trying to understand uh, the character of the American people through their origin. It was a big deal for him that, yes, you know, the frontier is part of American life, and that's something that it's hard for us to talk about being American without talking about also. Sure. Uh, but if you really want to understand our character, you have to go back to the origin. Uh, and so for Tocqueville, that means, yes, the Declaration's great. Yes, Constitution's great. But you have to go back even further to sort of the pre-political America. Exactly. And um, yeah, so he spends a great deal of time in New England. Um, for him, New England is kind of the, uh, I don't know, the apex of American freedom, is it not? I mean, the locality, local jurisdictions, uh, town meetings, uh, this is where he sees democracy in its purest form. Uh, well, it was the place where it all began, really, right. uh, and it was uh, it, it impressed him how much Americans cared about Plymouth Rock. Mm. You know, he would he described exactly. them sort of making these pilgrimages, right, uh, and, and taking chunks, yes, <laughs> taking selfies. We, yeah, we would do today, exactly, uh, exactly. And you know, and and just to, it's very easy to make fun of selfie culture. Uh, on the other hand, um, I think in it you see. Uh, this lingering desire for Americans to, yes, they focus on themselves all the time. Tocqueville says that's baked into who we are. But to do so in a way that also reconnects them with their yeah, origins. Exactly. Okay, so the subtitle of the book is, um, again, How Alexei de Tocqueville Can Save Us From Ourselves. Um, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with Americans? And what does uh, Tocqueville save us from? Well, I think it was <clears throat> President Bill Clinton who once said, there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed by what's right with America. Uh, you know, we can argue about that. Uh, but I think that Tocqueville, in a sense, wants Americans to understand. He said, one of our greatest blessings is, is we have the luxury of being able to learn from our mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's good news because we Americans are, are sort of mistake-prone people. You know, right. it's hard to right. be so free in... Uh, in a time and in a place where there's so much churn and competition and anxiety and change and turbulence, 
uh, across the field of human endeavor and not keep making mistakes. Tocqueville was blown away by how bankruptcy law functioned in America. People throw themselves into activities. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they're crushing failures. Uh, and the law says, okay, you know, take two. Uh, that was amazing to him. And so uh, as, as optimistic as he was about Americans' uh, capacity to learn from their mistakes and to recover from the experience of, of going, sort of overshooting the mark rather than having modest goals and pursuing them modestly, uh, he also was clear that, you know, we Americans are, are in a, an extraordinary time an extraordinary place that in, in the most important ways, unprecedented in history. Uh, and so we are just going to be anxious and restless and feel increasingly interchangeable and insignificant. Uh, there's no way to solve. They're not problems that can be solved. It's not a sickness that can be cured. It's not an, you know, like a, a, a math problem that we can a arrive at a final answer to. It's just part of life. And uh, that doesn't mean we should resign ourselves to it or feel passive uh, in the face of it. Quite the contrary. Tocqueville wants to show us how we can uh, live into that uh unsettled craziness and still have the opportunity to, to choose freedom and choose it well. Okay. So Tocqueville is uh, anybody who, a lot of people start reading Tocqueville and <clears throat> they pick up maybe the introduction and they read the introduction and maybe they start reading the first chapter about geography and they say, this is good. I think I'm going to put this down now. <laughs> um, but if anybody starts reading Tocqueville, the great thing about, you know, democracy in America is in the introduction, the very first thing he talks about is equality of condition. That this is the thing that, you know, struck him the most when he came to America in 1831, 1832, and traveled around. Um, and in the introduction, he talks about how equality of condition marks American Americans uh, more than any any other civilization in the world. And he says that this is a um, and a, really a work of God. This is providence. Um, it's, it's providential certainty that equality of condition is going to uh, displace aristocracy and feudalism that had been around in Europe since the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, you talk about uh, the Great Transition, and you know Tocqueville in his introduction gives this long history, it goes back to the 11th century in France, talking about how equality of condition begins to begins to germinate in European soil, begins to develop, growth of the middle class, rise of a money economy, those kinds of things. Um, you, you call it the great transition, which I, which I thought was a really creative, a really neat way to, to, to encapsulate what he's talking about. Um, can you talk about this great transition? Are we still living in it? Are we still experiencing it? Um, what are the effects of the great transition in the 21st century? So in Europe, uh, the great tragedy and trauma for Tocqueville was that democracy came <clears throat> through the sword. You know, uh, the French Revolution, of course, being the, the prime example that still reverberates through history, uh, where it was a sudden break. And in order to begin the, uh, the spread of equality and the equality of conditions, it had to happen with uh, massive upheaval, uh, <clears throat> destruction of r religious tradition and uh you know the execution of monarchs it was a <clears throat> it was a traumatizing radical break with the past for Tocqueville the Americans avoided all this uh of course there's a certain uh, uh definitiveness to climbing aboard the Mayflower and and starting uh a, a new uh settlement uh but it wasn't you know it, it it was Americans had the luxury of sort of growing into democracy 
Uh, and for those of us living today, it seems, you know, even people who are sympathetic to the idea that our continuities are more important than our discontinuities over American history, it still seems like a bit of a stretch to say, well, you know, we're still fundamentally similar to Americans in the 1830s and 40s. Uh, for many of us, just kind of instinctively at this point, it's like history kind of starts the Civil War. You know, people before right. then, eh, sure. powdered wigs and, mm -hmm. you know, horses and, and no electricity, no guns, no trains. No, come on. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the things that Tocqueville described as, as animating the American character back then are still very much in effect right now. And in fact, Tocqueville was quite clear that the, the transition away from the aristocratic age toward the, the democratic age was very well going to be a long one and one that would move sort of imperceptibly a step at a time, uh, in part because of what he described as kind of the providential character mm, right. of change, uh, of this kind of change. Uh, there's a beautiful footnote toward the very end of Democracy, Volume 2, where he says, and I'm just paraphrasing, uh, man's vision of unity is a sterile one. He makes everyone march in sort of single file toward one destination. Uh, God's vision of unity is, is infinitely fruitful. Uh, he leads us all by a, an infinite variety of paths toward one destination that we, we can never really know in advance. Uh, and that thought permeates the book, and, uh, and I wanted it to, to suffuse my book uh, in, in a way, too. Uh, you know, my book is structured uh, probably unlike other books about Tocqueville that, that you will read. Uh, in, in Democracy in America, periodically Tocqueville will beg the reader to consider that pulling various observations out of context is not going to give them the, the key to understanding his work and that it has to be, you know, even if you're tempted to put it down on page 10 because right. he's talking about rivers and mountains. <laughs> uh, no, he says, please, like, stick with me and go through, read the whole thing and just sort of marinate in it. And only by marinating in it will you be able to orient your thoughts and perhaps even your soul in a direction that will allow you to understand the whole. Uh, only through that kind of, of being led by an infinite number of paths will you arrive at the kind of understanding that Tocqueville wanted to impart. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I deliberately embraced that kind of methodology where, you know, some friends of mine are like, oh, I'm 100 pages in, it's great, but like, where is it going? And I go, ha ha, you know, <laughs> <laughs> why don't you read to the end and then mm -hmm. ask me? Yeah. You, you make a, an interesting uh, statement on page 50 of the book um, talking about uh, uh, aristocracy and, and sort of on this theme about being in this great transition and uh, what that means. Uh, you say, uh, uh, even if we don't want to live aristocratic lives, we somehow retain a longing for the aristocratic experience. Um, he says, but you say, paradoxically, it shows that we've moved farther away from the aristocratic aristocratic age than we think um what is what do you mean by that and what is what does Tocqueville mean uh so we don't really want to be royalty we don't want to be nobles we don't want those burdens it doesn't really make sense to us you know that whole aristocratic age thing of a, like a, a, a an honor culture religion deeply intertwined with the political order multi-generational families that last for hundreds of years through you know the patrilineal uh, arrangements, arranged marriages, you know, all those things that go into aristocratic culture, uh, you know, still having to put up with being a nobleman, even if you have no money, you know, it's living the life of an impoverished aristocrat is extraordinarily unattractive to Americans yeah. on many levels. Uh, and yet still, you know, still we live in a world where people half ironically refer to Beyonce as Queen Bee and uh, <laughs> routinely enjoy treating celebrities, whether they're 
famous for being famous or famous for being truly excellent in some way or another. Routinely treat them as if they are this kind of quasi-royal class mm-hmm. of people. Yeah. Uh, and so, too, do we like, you know, do we like experiences where we feel like we can be king or queen for the day? Uh, we love to be pampered, and we understand that these are fleeting enjoyments, but that makes us want them all the more, you know. It might even get boring to us to live in the lap of luxury every day, but all of us sort of you know, really wouldn't mind if we got kidnapped and sent to some tropical island and got to have like a completely carefree day because our cares are always pressing on us even when we are supposed to be relaxing. Right. Uh, and so Tocqueville wanted to draw attention to that. And, you know, it was, it was important for me too uh, because on the one hand, it does show the persistence of, uh, of habits of thought and, mm. and patterns That's of powerful. feeling yeah. that we think we've kind of shed. Uh, but on the other hand, it also shows, you know, that, that we are now quite a ways away and, and we're not in danger of, of falling back into those mm. old modes because, you know, they're really they're, they're not recoverable, uh, even if we have zillions of dollars. You know, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, you can't have a lot more money than Mark Zuckerberg right now. It's just not like logistically possible. And this guy, you know, yeah, he has like, you know, privacy hedges or whatever. Mm. Uh, but even yeah. even he understands, as Tocqueville said that uh, what, what people want from the rich isn't their money so much as, as a sacrifice of their pride. If mm. wealthy people treat mm. us as if we're, we're human beings too who matter as human beings, then we'll love them regardless of how much money they right. have. Right. It's interesting. I grew up in, uh, in Georgia in the South, and uh, my grandfather used to tell me when I was a kid that, uh, that I was a, a member of the Southern aristocracy. And he used to talk about how uh, we had relatives that stepped off the Mayflower, and that's one of the things that Tocqueville was astounded by, even in, in 1831, how many people said that they traced their lineage back to the, back to the Mayflower. That's right. And um, that's sort of a sign about how we want sort of the form of aristocracy without the rigid social hierarchical structure and so forth. And again, it's not really about the money. It just as you said, it's more about the status. And, um, but we're not comfortable with titles, obviously, um, for many, many reasons. Um, so let's talk about religion. Um, Tocqueville has some really powerful things to say about the, the position, the, the presence of religion in America. Um, I want to read another, just another selection from, from your book. Uh, on page 102 in your chapter on faith, um, you talk about Christianity. Um, you say that... Uh, uh, rather than dragging us uh, into a way of life complete with enumerated rules about science, law, diet, and more, Christianity gives us the grace to move toward human unity without trying to force uniformity. I thought that was a really insightful statement that you made um, as you were reflecting on Tocqueville. Um, maybe talk about that and talk about also um, more broadly how does Tocqueville envision religion in America and its influence? So, especially in times like ours when things get rough, the temptation is strong to want uh, religion and, and a religious creed to be a shelter, uh, much in the way that, mm, you know, yeah. to get a little theological, you know, Christ is a shelter from, from God the Father, uh, even when he's in the best of moods. Um, we need that intermediary in order to be safe. Uh, and there is a temptation for us to want to fill up the confines of our safe space with all these enumerated rules uh, so that anytime we're confronted with uh, a question or a doubt or an uncertainty as to how to proceed, you know, well, 
at least, you know, I can turn to my faith to supply me with an answer to every question that I'm going to have. Uh, and, and so you see the rise of, of comprehensive doctrines that are very powerful in that way. You see the rise of cults that are very powerful in that way. Uh, <clears throat> and you see the enduring appeal of, uh, of religions which do not necessarily uh, open up onto a field of human endeavor where, you know, the rules are, are, are quite open in things like commerce and science and the humanities and art. Uh, Tocqueville was impressed by the way that Christianity offered really just a few fundamental precepts. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, that allows human freedom to be channeled into all these fields of human endeavor in a way that can be quite powerful and lead to a lot of flourishing, but can also lead to a lot of anxiety and exhaustion. So he was, he was concerned that, that on the one hand there would be a temptation to, to fall back on some sort of comprehensive doctrine that would purport to give you an answer to every detailed question of, of your complicated existence. Mm. Uh, at the same time, he was worried that people would sort of give up on that too and just fall back on trying to make their, their home life as, uh, as domesticated and quiet and safe and simple, uh, you know, just sort of uh, sitting at home eating Funyuns and watching Seinfeld uh, unto death. And smoking marijuana. Yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> which, which makes Funyuns more delicious and Seinfeld more, more funny if I understand things correctly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he was, he was concerned that Americans would be susceptible to, to both of those things. Uh, so on the one hand, he um, speculates that far in the future, relatively speaking, uh, Americans could divide basically into Catholics on the one hand and uh, secularists on the other. Mm, yeah. Uh, his fear was that Protestantism, you know, is great for, uh, for uh, gratifying one's taste for independence and freedom. Mm. Uh, but if there's any kind of, you know, if you get a, if life gives you a sort of sharp elbow to the side, Tocqueville was worried that in an age like ours, the Protestants would, would just go fall all the way down to ground level and crash and their faith would be broken and they would feel more insignificant and interchangeable than ever and not be able to recover from that. Whereas he thought of Catholicism and, you know, he was from a Catholic tradition, but himself was sort of a, a sadly, la you know, right. he, he felt bad sure. about not really being as Catholic as he sure. wanted to be. Uh, but he still thought of the patterns and habits of thought that, that, that Catholicism inculcates work as sort of like a stack of mattresses. So if you do, you know, if life sort of tosses you off the building, you can fall, but, but bounce and not crash the way he thought Protestants might be, you know, unbeknownst to themselves, primed for crashing. Uh, and, you know, the evidence suggests that he, that Tocqueville was not, you know, was not smoking marijuana when he, <laughs> when he had that, that concern. At the same time, though, uh, going back to, uh, to the way Tocqueville talks about the, the, the genius of sort of minimalist Christianity, uh, where even with just a few uh, powerful guideposts or rules for, for life, uh, for orienting your soul, uh, you can be anchored in a way that will that will tether you and keep you sane and focused no matter what life throws at you. So it's you know it's still early days yet on on the cosmic scale. But one thing that we can be sure of, as Tocqueville put it, is religion is the only permanent state of mankind. And while we're talking about religion, um, you know many if not most of the themes you cover in the book in your chapters relate to what Tocqueville calls mores or customs or manners. Um, what he says he calls them the habits of the heart. Um, how do American manners manifest themselves in the culture today? And what would you say maybe has changed since 1831 when Tocqueville was here? Well, obviously the biggest change is we have Twitter now. It's a big one. And they didn't in 1831. Well, you know, I, d I don't want to be glib about it, but 
um, especially now, you know, uh, Twitter is kind of holding up this mirror to ourselves, and what we see there is often very unflattering. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It was so important in Tocqueville's estimation for us to pull ourselves out of <clears throat> excessive inwardness and into face-to-face -face unscripted uh, encounters with our, our fellow human beings. Uh, on the other hand, um, if there's nothing higher, if there's no higher power or presence that can consecrate those encounters uh, in a way that redeems the participants in, in one another's eyes, I think the temptation, the, uh, the risk, the threat of seeing another person as, as a, a monster becomes becomes pronounced and uh and just the the atmosphere of mutual contempt and disgust with our fellow man right is uh, is is truly hurting us um and people seem too often unwilling even to stop and think about how to ameliorate that and right. how not to right uh if we see you know and this puts me in the mind of chesterton's quote that we are to go back to one of tocqueville's basic precepts we're commanded to love our neighbors because oftentimes it's you know it's our neighbors who we hate the most <laughs> uh and there's there's something to that and so you know that the way that that social media and the internet has has pulled us not just inward so that we spend all day with our nose in our phones, especially when we're at home, just sort of obsessively, you know, exhaustively scrolling through Twitter or whatever. Uh, it's not only pulling us inward, but it's, it's thrusting us back outward in a way that is fundamentally fueled by rancor and hatred and, and yeah. disgust, you right. know, not right. just looking down your nose at someone, but saying in, mm -hmm. in effect, you know, looking at you makes, makes me feel like it's bad news to be human. Yeah. That's terribly damaging. Uh, and you know, I, I, if, if my book made even a, the tiniest difference in ameliorating that, I, yeah. would, I would feel like I'd, I'd, uh, made a contribution. Exactly. Um, volume one of democracy in America, there's two volumes, um, for our audience who hadn't read it, read the book. It's volume one, volume two. Uh, he completes volume one in 1835, completes volume two in 18, 1840. Um, they're very different, right? They're very different kinds of books. They have, there's a, a, a major tonal difference between the two. Um, volume one is much more political. Uh, volume two is much more cultural. Uh, did you find yourself more in resonance with one of those two volumes? Well, this isn't too much of a spoiler alert, I don't think, but the careful reader may notice over the course of reading my book that there is a bit of a tonal shift as well. Mm. Um, and it is the sort of tonal shift that you find between volume one and volume two. Uh, volume one is... Uh, you know, I mean, this is the one that John Stuart Mill read, and he's exactly. like, "This is great. Oh, right. You must buy. Get out right. there. Run. Don't walk to your local bookstore and right. pick up Volume One." Right. Uh, whereas Volume Two is briefer, but also denser in a in a quiet mm -hmm. way, and, sure. and and more suffused with with melancholy, and yet more vulnerable as well. Tocqueville opened up, as we would put it. You know, mm -hmm. you can really get up close and personal with Tocqueville, and he earns that melancholy and doesn't just wallow in it he he uses it as a pathway to confronting what is what is really raw and more hopeful in in our shared lives and in our personal lives uh and i found myself half intentionally doing the same thing so first half of the book um was written to be sort of breezily informative and engaging 
Uh, and it's, you know, people have enjoyed that, that aspect of it. Uh, but there's also another audience too. Uh, and, and some of that audience includes the, the first kind of audience. People who say, you know, this is really edifying and entertaining and I get it and I'm glad and I'm enjoying it, but I'm in pain. Uh, my life is, is not sort of a clear plan that I'm following. Uh, I have challenges. I don't know if I can surmount them. I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I don't know what's going to become of me. Uh, whether I'm, you know, strong in my faith or not, or not interested in faith, you know, regardless of how much money you have or where you are in your life, your age, many of us, especially now and not just politically, are haunted by, by our pain uh, and our uncertainty in our lives. Uh, and I, I knew that my book needed to speak to people on that point in a way that Tocqueville, especially in volume two, spoke to me on, right. that, on that point. Uh, so if you are, if you are concerned that this book is going to be, you know, a nice read for someone whose life is in, you know, sort of shiny, happy order, uh, no, this book is for you too. And especially for you, if, if you find yourself so consumed by the craziness that surrounds us and by the, the voice that speaks in silence and tells you to be afraid, uh, this book is for you and especially on the back half. So, uh, uh, enjoy. Yeah. Hopefully. So let me ask you one last question then, as we wrap up our, our time together talking about Tocqueville, what surprised you the most? in reading Tocqueville and in preparing the book? Oh, you know, I had a long run at Tocqueville, uh, having first come to him relatively late in life, uh, I suppose, as a graduate student at Georgetown. Uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't really start reading Tocqueville or finish reading Tocqueville until I was well into my 30s. Um, and so uh, going back uh, and really gutting the book for all of the choicest quotes that I wanted to share with the world... Uh, there were a couple things that surprised me, and, and one of them was uh, Tocqueville does have a sense of humor, uh, and he's, he can be very dry about it, uh, but it's there, and it's important, and it's mixed, you know, it's sort of mixed in with his more careful analysis, and it's mixed in with his sometimes bemused kind of fascination with what these crazy Americans are doing. Uh, and it was it, it seemed important to me too to carry that spirit into the book as well, where it's like you know, come on, you kind of can't help but laugh mm-hmm. at America and in Americans, and if you can do that with a good conscience, uh, I think you are you are on your way toward understanding how to embrace the craziness of life in a constructive way, not in a passive way, and not in a sort of coreless way. So, what's your next next project? Are you going to go further with Tocqueville? Are you working on something else or? Oh, goodness. Uh, one thing that, that is of increasing concern to me right now uh, is that, uh, to, to kind of go back to what we were, we were discussing a little earlier, uh, just the, the spirit of rancor that is consuming yeah, right. the culture. Uh, not, you know, politics is a contact sport, and the um, sort of totalitarian uh, ideology of niceness that pervades so much of life at the same time as we're all screaming at each other. You know, that is also bad. Niceness is not a virtue. It's just niceness. Uh, And enforcing a culture of niceness on people seems like part of the problem, not part of the solution. Uh, Nevertheless, it is good to be human. Um, We're not here to be perfect. We're born to die. Uh, We are shot through with mistakes and we are prone to error, even when we very intelligently and carefully think about what it is that we're trying to do. 
uh, that's baked into being human. But warts and all, it is still good to be human, and it is good enough to be human. We should not want to be less than human. We should not want to be more than human. Uh, and the way that technology is making it harder for us to think through the goodness of being human is, I think, a, a, a serious, pronounced issue that we are going to have to confront in, in as, as, as thoughtful of a way as we can, but urgently over the next 10 years. All right. Well, thanks. It's been a great conversation. I always enjoy talking to another Tocqueville nerd like myself. I like to think of myself as a Tocqueville nerd myself. So thanks for the book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, I hope it sells a whole bunch of copies and I hope it makes a big difference in our society with, you know, contribution to uh, civility and our discourse. And um, hopefully it'll also contribute to uh, some healthy customs, mores, manners, as as Tocqueville says. Thanks a lot for the conversation. Make mores great again. Thanks, (laughs) Thanks a lot. Thank you. And with that, we bring another edition of Radio Free Acton to a close. I want to thank once again uh, James Polis for being with us. He is the author of The Art of Being Free, How Alexis de Tocqueville Can Save Us from Ourselves. You can pick that up, of course, uh, Amazon.com or other online or brick-and-mortar booksellers. Uh, assuming that the booksellers are interested in selling books that are worth reading, that would be a, that would be a book that's worth reading. The Art of Being Free. How Alexis de Tocqueville can save us from ourselves. Thanks as well to John Wilsey for joining us once again and for uh, directing the conversation today. John is, of course, Assistant Professor of History and Christian Apologetics and Associate Director of the Land Center for Cultural Engagement at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Lovely campus in Fort Worth, Texas, and it was great uh, to have John back in town here. He was uh, with us for the Acton Lecture Series last October was a great guest on Radio Free Acton, and it was good to see him again. So with that, I want to say thank you to you as well. If you have not subscribed to Radio Free Acton, please do so. Hit the iTunes link in the post with this podcast. It'll take you right over to the iTunes store. You can subscribe, get the podcast on your mobile device or PC or wherever automatically, which is the best way to get a podcast. And, of course, if you know of other folks who might be interested in the work of the Acton Institute, spread that link around and tell them about Acton and the work we do here because we think it's worth uh, supporting a free and virtuous society that's characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. That's our mission here at the Acton Institute. We're going to keep working on that. In the meantime, you keep working at what you have to work at. We'll talk to you on future editions of Radio Free Acton. Thanks a bunch, everybody. Have a great day.